Coming up on the Fulcrum Global Podcast, we discuss the recent military coup in Burma and its domestic and international implications. How will this impact the future of Burmese democracy and geostrategic tensions between the United States and China? Find out now. Stand by for Fulcrum Global. Hello and welcome to the first Fulcrum Global Podcast, where friends and peers get together to discuss and brainstorm issues regarding the fields of national security, defense, intelligence, and foreign affairs. I'm Sam Kessler, the host and chief editor of Fulcrum Global, and I'm very excited that we finally got this project underway after a year it was first proposed. For those who don't know what Fulcrum Global is or does, it's quite simple. It's the digital media platform of the Society for Defense and Strategic Studies at American Military University. You can find us at fulcrumglobal.us and read our articles, background reports, intelligence briefs that are contributed by our members who are a combination of alumni, students, faculty, and industry-wide professionals. Together, we help create a solid product that can provide our audience with a more dynamic understanding of some of the most pressing issues of our time. Today's discussion topic will be regarding the recent military coup in Myanmar, which is also known as Burma by the U.S. State Department. It was only recently in 2015 that the country was shifted into a democratic elections after decades being run by the Burmese military. However, their military recently took over and arrested hundreds of members of the party that won their November 2020 elections by a landslide, including their elected leader. As a result, the military has declared wide-scale election fraud by the civilian authority and have declared a year-long state of emergency, which means the military is back in charge of state affairs. With that said, the country has now seen massive protests throughout the region, and at least 21 protesters have been killed so far. There's a lot of aspects that one can dive into this issue, and we're going to attempt to cover as many areas as possible within an hour-long segment in order to give you, the audience, a good idea of the big picture. For instance, the societal hierarchy of Myanmar is quite complicated, and we're going to dive into that aspect as well as the relationship and implications that the coup is going to have on the geopolitical and geostrategic positions that are ongoing between the United States and China. Yes, there's a great power competition story associated to this situation, and our guests will be discussing that as well. 
With that said, let's get started with our two guests who are also Fulcrum Global contributors, Dr. Mark Cass and Waylon Blue. Our two guests have a great deal of knowledge and experience in the issues we'll be discussing today, and I especially look forward to their feedback on what is going on in Myanmar and other aspects in regards to how the coup is impacting the internal dynamics of the country, as well as the geopolitical and geostrategic implications as well. Dr. Mark Cass is currently the Managing Director for PH Diversified Services, Incorporated, which is a global political risk and consulting firm. In addition, he is active in the academic world, teaching international relations and other relevant subject matter for several universities. Mark also teaches at both the doctoral and undergraduate levels throughout the world, and he is also an active blogger. Waylon Blue is currently a researcher with the Shade Tree Foundation, which is an NGO located in Thailand that is focused on aid and development issues within the Burmese migrant and refugee communities. He also serves as a reservist and served as an active duty Marine officer, holding a wide variety of leadership roles in the military, as well as having served in Afghanistan. Wayland holds a BA in political science from UC Berkeley and has an MA in international relations and conflict resolution from American Military University. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you both on the first podcast. This is a very interesting and timely topic to discuss. It's also a very important one when looking at the big picture of things. I look forward to picking your brains and hearing your feedback on this topic. So, Waylon, we're going to start with you because you have a direct exposure to the situation and can provide a boots-on-the-ground type of perspective for us and our listeners. My first question for you is this. You have a military coup that just sprung up in the last few weeks, but there's a big history about it. Your article mentioned a timeline that begins in 1947. From your perspective, what are the historical events since 1947 that have evolved and led to the current situation we're seeing now? Thank you. Yeah, it is, uh, it's important to have the historical context on this because this isn't really the first time that this has happened. This has happened a couple of times in the history of Myanmar. To begin, 1947 is when, at that time it was Burma, uh, got independence from the British Empire. And it was shortly after, obviously, the end of World War II. And there was a lot of issues with ethnic conflict that were going on that have deep historical roots. So Burma used to be part of the British Empire, and it's always been a very ethnically diverse and complex part of the world there in Southeast Asia. And since 1947, it's had independence. So what is the current history leading up to the coup? It seems to have a history of movements that are democratic versus socialist versus military it always seems like they end up going back and forth to a military leadership. There's a history of this going on, and the events of the 1980s are certainly part of the process. Uh, in your opinion, how does it all tie into the recent coup by the military? Can you give some input about the situation and the recent democratic government that seems to have ended? So the historical background for this is in 1947, Burma got its independence from the British Empire. And almost immediately, as a result of the events that were going on in the world at the time, with shortly after the end of World War II, and then you had the Cold War going on, 
or beginning to kick off, there was a communist insurgency up in the north. It started up in the north of the country on the border with China, and it soon engulfed the whole country. And well, not quite the whole country, but significant portions. And uh, it started out initially as having a democratic government or quasi-democratic government for quite some time. However, the security issues that were going on with the communist insurgency and also the dynamics that were in play with uh, it being a very ethnically diverse country, Mm -hmm. that a lot of the ethnic issues hadn't really been resolved once at the point that it got independence. There was the, the multiple conflicts going on led to the military essentially being the only institution in the country that had enough power to do anything about it. And they launched their initial coup in the early 1960s, and they held on to power for a while up until the 80s. And there was a lot of movements for democracy, a lot of pushes for democracy, that kind of thing, uh, or, or restoration of democracy, rather. And then in the 1980s, a lot of people in the Burmese community talk about the 8888 revolution or uprising, the 1988 uprising. And that's when you had the emergence of the democratic movement. That's when Aung San Suu Kyi, who's actually the daughter of General Aung San, who was the first, he wasn't, he wasn't the, he wasn't the uh, leader of independent Burma because he actually got assassinated before the country got independence. However, she was the leader of the democratic movement that, that was essentially knocked down by the military's backlash against it in 1988. So after 1988, the country became very, very isolationist. Well, it was isolationist before that, but it became more so in the following couple of years. However, after that, into the 1990s, and then especially getting into the early 2000s, it began to open up, especially to the region, the rest of Southeast Asia. Prior to that, the main trading partner that Burma had was China, and the relationship between China and Burma got a lot stronger after that. However, once you get to the late 2000s, around about 2010, 2011, that's when you had the beginning of the transition towards a civil society and the military government began to realize that they couldn't quite hold on to power as much as they had in the past. And there was a transition to democracy. And so over the last decade, essentially, it's been kind of a quasi-democracy, kind of a blended system up until 2015, when there was actually an election. And Aung San Suu Kyi, the, uh, I guess in the media, they call her the de facto leader of Burma. I would say the nominal leader because she doesn't control the military. The military is independent from the civilian government, kind of reverse of the way that things work in the United States. And in 2015, the National League for Democracy, which is her political party, took power and they were working on amending the constitution to put the military back under civilian control. However, obviously, for a lot of reasons, the security issues, the ongoing conflicts throughout Burma, that didn't quite work out. So anyway, that is a little bit of the context, a little bit of the background to what is going on, what you see today in terms of a shift back towards authoritarianism, back towards the military coming in, taking control. It's interesting to see the transition like that, because an interesting point you made was how the military was very separate from the democratic establishments. And it seems like they were always in their own sphere of influence. And they were already poised if they wanted to pull a coup or, or a takeover, it sounds like. 
Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. The key thing to remember about the military is going back to independence, the, the Burmese military, the Tatmadaw in Burmese, has always been independent from the civilian government. They've always the most powerful institution in the country. In many ways, it is, you could say, it's the founding institution of the country. And they've always maintained that independence. So especially when we're talking about human rights, when we're talking about Burma's rather poor, to put it mildly, human rights record, any discussion of that has to take into account, especially in the last decade, any discussion of that has to take into account the fact that the Tatmadaw, the Burmese military, has always been independent. So the civilian government, for whatever, for the brief periods in the history of the country that there has been a civilian government, the civilian government doesn't really have that much authority over it. So the thing to consider is that you look at the history, you look at how things have gone in the country. The key thing that the military uses to legitimize its authority is the fact that there is insecurity in the country. There is conflict. There is sub-state conflict going on. In the past, you could describe it as a civil war because there were very active separatist movements, different factions throughout the country, particularly in the peripheral region, the provinces, and well, they call them states there, but the states along the borders with the neighboring countries are mostly ethnic minority regions or within the context of the larger country, ethnic minority regions. However, these ethnic minorities have the preponderance of the population in these territories. They have been involved in a lot of separatist activity in the past. However, the transformation over as the conflict has evolved has been more towards it present. It's evolved towards wanting more of a federal system where central government authority is devolved towards the states, kind of like what we have in the United States. But because of that history of conflict, of instability, of civil war, the military is able to justify its continued autonomy, essentially, from the central government and its ability to be able to come in and provide security, uh, with, albeit with a heavy hand. So, yes, I would say that they've been for the last 10 years that there have been even in the last decade where there's been a shift towards nominal democracy. They've been waiting in the wings and ready to do do what they essentially have just done. What seems interesting is that do you think that with what's going on and what you just described, do you think in terms of a society of people in the country, is it just business as usual for them, do you think? Or do you think they've had a taste of a different way of doing things? Has that really impacted them in that capacity? Or how does this affect the country and the region throughout the area? Like in terms of trends, do you think this is just a step back to the previous area pre-2015? Or do you see it as creating a new list of issues that the military might not have considered? Or I don't know, maybe they did consider, I don't know. But like, what are your thoughts on that? Great question. So the first time I went to Burma was, let's see, it was probably back in 2008. And that was still when it was under a military dictatorship. So back then, you couldn't get a cell phone. To put it in context, you couldn't get a cell phone unless you paid like cell, cell phones and SIM cards. You had to pay about the equivalent of a few thousand US dollars, if I remember correctly. So almost nobody had internet connection. Almost nobody had access to information like we have today that is taken for granted. And there was very, very strict control on information, on the media, on all that kind of thing that was going on when the military dictatorship was in full swing and had been for 
for several decades at that point. However, in the early 2010s, big changes happened because the government allowed cell phones and allowed cheap SIM cards. And what happened over the last decade was the internet penetration in Burma became one of the highest in the world. And uh, especially for the use of social media, you look at Facebook especially has got a huge presence in Burma right now. So information is very, very easy to share. And a lot of people are able to access the information to a level that they have never been able to before. So talking to people that lived under the military dictatorship in the past, and uh, obviously a lot of them are still alive, uh, it is not quite business as usual for them. To answer, to give you a succinct answer, it's not quite business as usual because they've had a, they've had several years at this point of a taste of access to information, access to the outside world, and with that, the ability to organize and the ability to coordinate their efforts. So at this point, I would say that it is significantly different than the past periods of military rule. That is very interesting. It seems that the more information you get really does change a lot of things. So another issue that you raised was the relationship to the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. So my question relating to that is looking at how are they responding and dealing with Myanmar since the 1990s and post-88? And then how would you describe that community's reaction to what's happening now? Is it different? Is it because of new information and people know more what's happening in the country? Was it significantly different or is there something else I haven't thought about? Yeah, great question. So looking at the way that ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, functions in general and functions specifically towards Burma, really important thing to understand about ASEAN is all the countries in ASEAN have got a history that is... You could say similar to Burma, similar to what has been going on there in terms of almost every country in ASEAN has an experience of internal conflict, civil war, that kind of thing. And so one of the founding principles of ASEAN is non-interference in member states' internal issues. Mm-hmm. So in post-88, well, in, in the lead up to that and post-88, ASEAN's been around for a while now. Uh, But in the lead up to that and post-88, there was what they called it in Thailand was constructive engagement, where the Thai government was trying to talk to, negotiate, uh, start getting more economic access, start start getting more bilateral trade and open regional trade with Burma in order to improve the region's economy. So that their their take on that, looking at it and uh, reading the history about it and talking to a few people that were involved in it, what was going on there was they were essentially being pragmatic in terms of they understood that they couldn't change anything that was going on inside the country. However, they could definitely get access to the market that was there because an important thing to understand is that during the past period of military rule, Burma was very, very isolationist, not quite to the level of North Korea, but it was kind of in the same class in terms of being isolationist. They had what they called the Burmese way to socialism. And so it, it, anyway, the, the internal economy 
economy, there was, there was this idea of being self-sufficient and all that kind of thing. It didn't work out. The country started out as being one of the richest countries in Southeast Asia after independence from the British Empire. However, during that period of military rule, the economy degraded significantly. Uh, and that was actually one of the contributing factors to the 1988 uprising. So the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, especially Thailand, was trying to take advantage of the fact that the Burmese economy needed some help and it represented a market that they could access. And so they started negotiating trade, negotiating access, and essentially opening up the economy to the region. However, you look at that period and there was very little commentary about what was going on inside the country in terms of human rights abuses. Because at that time, in the 1990s, there was uh, significant central government offensives against various ethnic minorities, counterinsurgency type activities. However, the Burmese military being what it is, there was a lot of major human rights abuses, all that kind of thing. So contrasting that to what is going on now, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is still hesitant. All the countries from a government perspective, they appear to still be very hesitant when it comes to directly criticizing the Burmese government, the military government again. However, unlike in the past, you look at the populations, you look at the civil societies in neighboring countries, there is much, much more discussion, much more open criticism of the situation in Burma. Especially in Thailand, you've got protests going on at the Burmese embassy in Bangkok. You've got solidarity movements. You've got all kinds of things that you didn't see in the past. So from, I would say to return to the original question, I would say from a government perspective, it's still kind of hushed and they're trying to figure out exactly how to respond from a, but from a civil society perspective, it's much more vocal in terms of the criticism of what's going on and support for the Burmese people. You, you gave an idea to me for a question. Some of the things you've written, I think it was either for Fulcrum Global or it was the article you did for the, the U.S. Marine Corps Gazette. Is, is that correct? I'm not saying that correctly. Yes, Marine Corps Gazette. Okay. But it's actually vital to the U.S. national security and foreign policy interests. Uh, how come it always seems to get attention every few years? Maybe I'm wrong, but does it seem like it's something that the U.S. revisits every few years or is it just a recurring theme? It just seems like we take a break and then we return whenever there's an issue. Is that a U.S. foreign policy concern or do you think that there's a need to update the strategy in that part of the world or in terms of that particular area? Also, there are other areas in that region you have, East Indian Ocean and other parts of the Pacific. Do you feel that the U.S. could actually put more effort into that region and what could that actually look like? Well, short answer, yes. Uh, but to give you the more detailed answer, I would say uh, I would say looking at the historical perspective of how of U.S. interactions with Burma, it has been very very focused, especially since 1988, which is when Burma really started to capture international, including U.S. attention. It has been very focused on uh, fixing the human rights issues, promoting democracy, that kind of thing, and that's been a consistent theme. Uh, up until the the transition to a nominally civilian government in 2010, 2011, and then to 
you could say nominal democracy in 2015. Up until up until that period, it was very much criticism of the Burmese government, the military government, very much centered on correcting the human rights record, that kind of thing. However, you look back at the period when the government transitioned to a nominal civilian rule, and that happened to coincide with the Obama administration's pivot to the Pacific. And it was actually one of the key achievements of that agenda, the pivot to the Pacific, when President Obama actually visited Burma. So at that particular time, a lot of the narrative, a lot of the conversation kind of shifted towards supporting the transition to democracy, supporting the civil society in Burma, and helping that transition to democracy continue and and solidify. So that has kind of been the agenda, kind of been the narrative with, in terms of U.S. policy towards Burma from the time that it has become an issue for the United States back in 1988. It's been focused on democracy, promoting democracy, promoting human rights, promoting development, that kind of thing. Now, what you see in the last couple of years with the shift towards what we're calling it now, great power competition between the United States, Russia, and China, and the renewed, very, very heavy focus on the South China Sea as a competition zone, potential conflict zone between the United States and the People's Republic of China. A lot of U.S. attention, a lot of government attention is focused there uh, from the military perspective, from the national security perspective. Mm-hmm. However, I would argue, and as, as you mentioned, I have argued that you look at Burma and you look at the history, and I think that Dr. Cass is going to get into this a little bit, you look at the history of how the PRC has interacted with Burma, and you look at the current global context of what the PRC is doing, Burma is actually very important from a strategic perspective for the current climate, for the current situation. So you look at the South China Sea and you look at what the PRC is doing there, trying to essentially accomplish, uh, execute fait accompli uh, gambits where they're thin slicing and building islands on, on submerged rocks, submerged reefs, that kind of thing and expanding their territorial claims and basically trying to edge out the United States, push the United States out of the Western Pacific. And we're rightfully focused on that. However, they are doing the same thing in Burma in terms of trying to get access, not trying, but they have a lot of access there. They have a lot of influence there. And I, it looks like it is very much to the end goal of gaining a stronger foothold in the eastern part of the Indian Ocean and being able to have a way to bypass the Strait of Malacca, which is the Strait of Malacca, Sunda, and Lombok, those straits in Indonesia, being able to bypass that uh, with an overland route through Burma in order to secure their lines of transportation, their lines of communication to the Middle East, to their markets there. Middle East, Africa, everywhere. So I I would say that the United States has been looking at Burma very much from a human rights perspective, that kind of thing. However, I think that it needs a lot more strategic military attention. 
I can definitely see what you're saying because the Belt and Road Initiative, there's a lot of strategy going on that's being utilized by that concept. And like you said, to the Middle East, it also applies to Central Asia as well with the CPAC agreements with Pakistan and Iran. So it's interesting how it all plays out together. Yes, Um, absolutely. Yeah. So I thank you. Mark, do you want to add anything what you just said before we get to some of your questions? First off, Sam, thank you for inviting me. And also, it's great to communicate with Waylon again. In full disclosure, I was the chair, or not, yeah, I guess the chair of his master's thesis. And as you can tell from the quality of his educational and academic effort, it was reflected greatly in his work. And the thing I wanted to point out kind of briefly is, is kind of the storied history of the great Aung San Suu Kyi. I think she and Sam, and excuse me, Waylon can correct me. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 for this tremendous effort she put up. In fact, she was isolated for years from her family, and she became the darling of the Western world. Well, as time goes on, and obviously the struggles she has against the military, which are up and down, sometimes she's slightly ahead, most of the time she's covering. In that process, her status in the Western world has kind of shifted because, and it's all reflected in the Rohingya, which as we all well know, are the the Muslim ethnic group in Burma, who was literally almost destroyed by the Burmese army. But the sad part about it was, and I can say this as a Westerner standing at arm's length away, the sad part about it was many people felt she just betrayed the Rohingya. And so that's all been reflected in this, oh, about the last year, year and a half, where the Rohingya have managed to escape and go to Bangladesh. And now they're putting them on islands off of Bangladesh. So her storied career is kind of had some dirt thrown on it. So that's one of the issues, more as an aside than anything else. Uh, so from that perspective, I think Whelan has set the groundwork as to precisely the geopolitical issues that we as the United States, and more importantly, the Chinese are facing. And if I might suggest something, and then we'll go to, I'll curtail this. From my perspective, having lived through the Cold War, this is not dissimilar to the Cold War. I mean, we have the Russians and the Chinese acting like the Cold War, especially in the Trump administration, we were acting like the Cold War. The Obama administration, as Whalen pointed out, created the pivot to Asia. And that was a distinct difference in policy. Whether he pulled it off or right is, a, is, is subject to debate. So basically what we have now is a revivification of the Cold War uh, with different players, different, different parts of the combatants having more power or less power than before. From my perspective, the Russians have no power. So it's basically us and the Chinese. And at this point in time, the U.S. needs to search in its soul as to where it really wants to go. So I'll just I'll leave it at that point. To respond to that, do you think that the U.S. needs a Cold War mentality or does it need something else? I think we need a little bit of more of a Cold War mentality. But here's here's something of interest to me. And obviously it's more it's slightly political, which is I believe the current administration has a bunch of cold warriors in its ranks. I mean, in terms of knowledge, maybe that's stretching it a bit, but in terms of knowledge of the area, practical experience of the area, I heard something last night that was very compelling. Biden and Mr. Xi, the president of China, have known each other for 20 years. They've had vast amount of experience with each other. You know, they have a lot of experience with each other. Let's leave it at that. And so they're not unknown to each other. And they're not really looking at from the last administration, the economic perspective, which is totally important. 
but they're looking at the fact that they have a backlog and an experience together of knowing each other, knowing how the other side thinks, traveling around together a lot, for a matter of fact. So it's a different experience. But yes, we need to be tougher with the Chinese. There's no doubt about it. In terms of Cold War mindset, or at least, you know, the Cold War had a lot of interesting side stories that you could spend many days or at least several hours talking about. Since AMU is a school that teaches national security, international relations, intelligence, homeland security, all this stuff. What do you think in terms for students, and some of them are people who have already worked in the fields, but when learning about this subject matter, how, what, what, uh, I guess the question I'm trying to come up with is, how do you teach a Cold War mindset? Because it seems like you need a lot of people from that era to actually present that more. Or do you think it's something that a person just learns on the spot? Is it something that people just learn in time? Or, I mean, how does that work if you're someone studying in this field and you're in this environment? That's a great question. Thank you. From my perspective, it requires a distinct historical understanding of the region and of the warrior, the cold warriors, as it were. I mean, the combatants. And I don't mean combatant in a combative sense. I mean, it's more of a technical geopolitical term. So from that perspective, and I'm really focusing on China, so I'll leave Russia out, Russia out of discussion since that's not germane to what we're talking about. And I don't think they're major players other than the fact they have too many nuclear weapons. But you have to look at it in terms of the Chinese. They have a minimum of 6,000 years of history. So we have to understand the perspective of the Chinese hubris, the Chinese pride. I mean, they are a consequential civilization in this world. And there are few other civilizations, with the exception of some religious civilizations, that are even close to them. So we, in the U.S., being a relatively young country, have to understand what it is that makes them tick, but also, more importantly, how do we negotiate with them? How do we encourage them, in quotes, to do things in our best interest and in their best interest? I don't, you know, I believe it should be a mutual process. So from that perspective, an understanding of Chinese history is helpful. From my perspective, an understanding a minimum of Chinese-American relations since World War II, the end of World War II, when China became its own country, but more particularly the relationship that occurred between Nixon and Mao. And so understanding that perspective, because Kissinger was in the mix. And so it might be helpful for people to read uh, a little Kissinger in the process to understand, but I mean, this is, he's a master statesman. Uh, he, he has his, we all have issues with him, but so understanding that perspective and then understanding the perspective where the Chinese have come since 1980. I think Whalen referred to that with respect to the Burmese, but where the Chinese have come since 1980, the, fan, the just phenomenal economic development they have. But more importantly is we're not giving up this fight either. You know, how is it, how does the U.S. maintain, this is where the Cold War aspect, Cold Warrior aspect comes in. How does the U.S. maintain its power? How does the U.S. maintain its skill? How does the U.S. get things from the Chinese we need to get from them by the same token, offering them opportunities for development within the context of two superpowers? So, you know, from my perspective, that's initially it. I mean, I can, if, if you have a further desire to probe that, I'd be happy to discuss it because there's there's some more context to it as well. My worry is that we're going to get off somewhat off the topic, although it's very related. 
But what you were saying, I, I agree with you. It was very pivotal with Nixon and Mao and with Kissinger. And a lot of that ties into how some of the research I've done has looked at the US-China-Russia triangle balance of power. And I'm, I don't want to get too much into Russia, but I remember before he died, uh, Brzezinski a few years back, and he talked about that the biggest national security concern that he thought was that trilateral balance of power system is shifting in that regard. I, I think it's very possible. But like you said, I don't count the U.S. out. And there's a lot of other areas that can be utilized from a diplomatic or a competition aspect. But the the question, I'm going to try to loop back to Myanmar because I know we've kind of ties to what you were saying. On big picture, now we have to loop it back in. <laughs> but Mark, what we're seeing now in Burma, in terms of global and geopolitical ramifications, you have what we just talked about with the U.S. involvement. Is it going to be more of a diplomatic involvement? Or, I mean, right now, Beijing has had a lot of influence in that country for a very long time. So... Mm-hmm. What is going to be the U.S. role in dealing with that reality? I mean, first of all, you, would you say that the Chinese have more influence in the military over there than anyone? I mean, are they th- that independent or do they have a relationship with Beijing that is military related, I guess? I mean, do they, do they back it or, or not? Or how does that work? Well, from my perspective, the first foreign policy crisis that the Biden administration is facing is Burma. And they have, and Whalen is probably much more knowledgeable about this perspective, but what they've basically done is frozen the funds of the generals. Maybe that's 40 million, maybe it's slightly more, maybe it's even much more than that. So the U.S. has frozen their funds right now in response to the uh, political uproar going on in Burma right now. So that's one way that we're negotiating with them. But the second thing is that from my perspective, I, I strongly believe that the Chinese, through their Belt and Road Initiative and through other initiatives they've been doing militarily, are strongly involved in Burma. And they may even be strongly, and there's no doubt in my mind that they're strongly involved with the pro-army pro, uh, or pro-military economic development community in Burma. So Burma is a piece in their puzzle that they're strongly working on. And I, I won't go too far off that, but there's this, you can see the arc of the Chinese involvement in both Burma, especially now what's going on in India, Southeast Asia, uh, South China Sea, going into Africa, going into the Middle East. I'll leave it at that. But how strongly they're involved is Whalen can speak to more directly. But I think there's significant influencers. We'll leave it at that in the, in the Burmese experiment. If I might add to that, So you look at the uh, historical context again, and the PRC, the and specifically the PLA, the People's Liberation Army of China, has been one of the. If for a while it was the biggest arms dealer to Burma, and outside of the military context, like I like I mentioned before, the PRC is the biggest trading partner, the most important trading partner for for everything else uh, that Burma has historically and currently. That being said, it's very interesting to look at the opinions, look at what the generals actually say there in Burma, and look at how they behave. A, a good way of thinking about the Burmese military is, from international relations terms, is that they're very, very realist. They are hyper-realist. They are very conscious of their position, and they want to avoid historically and currently. It's hard to say. At present, it's hard to say. But in the past, they have very much wanted to avoid being too dependent on anyone else. 
And that goes back to uh, the previous period of military rule, the Burmese way to socialism, their isolationism, all that kind of thing. So on the one hand, they've got the very strong relation, trade relation, military to military relations with PRC. But at the same time, they want to protect their own interests. They want to avoid being too dependent on anyone. Now, add on top of that, some of the ethnic armed groups in, especially in the north of the country, in the north of Burma, uh, on the border with China, some of those have relations with the Chinese as well. So China has been pursuing what you could call a strategy of dual engagement with the central government, as well as some of these ethnic armed groups, previously separatist movements. Now they say that they want a devolved, decentralized federal system. But nevertheless, they've got guns. They've got a monopoly on violence in their territory. And the Chinese political establishment, as well as economic, as well as military establishment, negotiates with them, sometimes on the same terms, uh, at the same level that they do with the central government of Burma. So you have a very strong military to military, central government to central government relationship. However, at the same time, the Chinese have been pursuing this dual engagement. So that legitimizes the military's realist position, realist stance. However, I would say, speaking to right now, speaking to what has transpired over the last couple of weeks, the perspective from inside Burma, from the Burmese community in Thailand, and those people inside Burma that are still able to access social media, I guess you could call them conspiracy theories until until they're vetted, but there is a lot of commentary, a lot of things being shared about uh, the Chinese government sending advisors, sending weapons, sending support to the military in Burma right now. Uh, there's been a very, very strong uh, tilt towards being towards anti towards anti China sentiment among a lot of Burmese people, and it is because of this perception that the military in Burma is aligned with Beijing. And whether it's true or not, the uh, the opinion, the perception is that Beijing knew about this, knew that this was going to happen, and agreed with it, and is supporting it now. So, Mark, with what Whalen said, if that's happening, it's going to be a pretty interesting scenario to maneuver things. And like you said, everyone is weighing some kind of influence over there. So a policy like realism, as Whalen mentioned, seems to raise new questions as the situation between the U.S. and China in the region becomes more complex. Uh, my question is going to be, is this just something that is going to be short term or is it just something that is still evolving uh, in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative? Is there a point where Burma might just decide that they can only be independent from everyone for so long, which would ultimately impact the relationship with the Chinese or Americans or whoever? Uh, Perhaps it would only be a scenario if the competition between the U.S. and China becomes more difficult for them. I'm not sure if neutrality would be the right word to describe the Burmese, but in terms of picking sides, uh, do you think they would make a choice or just go back to being more independent instead? You're putting me on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. I mean, what we have to do as the U.S., geopolitically is to prevent a fait accompli happening for the Burmese, for the Myanmar military. Um, 
And at this point in time, as Whalen has suggested, and as you have discussed, the fait accompli is pretty hard set in right now. Uh, you know, it's it's not something that can't be overturned. It's not something that over economic development can help. It's not something that other types of things could assist in. But you got to look at the geographic proximity. I mean, there they are, right on right next door to the this behemoth. But secondly, how do we then influence them? Okay, so right now Thailand is in turmoil. Uh, political geopolitical issues in Thailand, and also a large part of the population doesn't trust the royalty in Thailand, and hence the China the Thai government. So we have to be concerned about that, but we have much firmer foothold there. And the other aspect of it is the giant behemoth to the West, India, is a counterbalancing force to the Chinese right now. So the issue then becomes, how do we deal with the current Indian government who is not always on the right side of civil disobedience issues and human rights issues? So how do we maintain a status quo, if not better relationship with them to help the Burmese in a way to show that, yes, the U.S. is in fact there, but by the same token, also to demonstrate the Chinese is like, uh, let's not take this too far. What can we do for our mutual benefit to assist in that area of the world, especially Myanmar. It's interesting you mentioned with India as a balancing act and then with their civil situations and their track record with that, that definitely is an interesting part. I definitely think they do play a counterbalancing role in some capacity. What other countries do you think play a similar role? Would it be other ASEAN nations or other foreign actors too, other than just India? Or do you think it's just those key players? I'll mention a couple, and then maybe Whalen has some suggestions too, being on site and, and much more knowledgeable of the area. I would say the Japanese would be good, but basically World War II hasn't helped them any. You know, the turmoil that they created in that area. Yeah. So we'd have to look at the Koreans. So you'd have to look at a similar Buddhist nation of some sort. So to me, it would be the South Koreans. Uh, so the, the similar religiosity of the Koreans might, excuse me, South Korea might be very helpful. Uh, and then also, I know this is slightly a stretch, but the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese are really developing their cred right now, as it, you know, to, use, <laughs> to use a term. And uh, so that would be an interesting countervalence to the Chinese at this point, because they're already having issues with them in the South China Sea, and the Koreans as well, for that matter. Yeah. So that's my thoughts. Maybe Whalen has some thoughts, too. Yeah, I would agree with that in terms of uh, looking at Japan, looking at South Korea, looking at Vietnam, especially. Uh, in the context of Vietnam is a member of ASEAN, but in the context of other ASEAN countries, you look at the countries that actually have spoken up from a from a government perspective, at least, uh, to say nothing of civil society, but the ones that have spoken up over the last decade, especially in regard to the whole Rohingya issue, the Rohingya crisis, uh, were actually Malaysia and Indonesia. Now, part of that was, you could say, was a political move because Malaysia and Indonesia are majority Muslim countries, and the Rohingya ethnic minority in Myanmar is, of course, majority Muslim itself. However, it did signal that even at the government level in Oz, there are countries that are willing to say something. Now, at the same time, a lot of these countries still maintained uh, trade relationships throughout that whole period. Uh, well, I say that period, it's still ongoing with the many thousands of Rohingyas still in Bangladesh. But 
there is interest, I would say, in other ASEAN countries in terms of recognizing what the PRC is doing with its territorial claims, with its Belt and Road Initiative, with its trying to get access, gaining access throughout the region and uh, inducing dependencies in a lot of the economies throughout the region. There's awareness of that and there's interest in pushing back against it. Uh, that being said, it is, it's, it's still, it's, it's a really, really complicated situation, obviously, but it's the working with the Burmese military, with the military government is not something that anybody's quite been able to do, uh, been able to do and get anything done in a reasonable amount of time, I guess you could say in the past. I, I mean, I talked about in throughout the 1990s, early 2000s, there was the period of constructive engagement, opening up the country for trade, that kind of thing. That's how it happened in the past. And eventually bringing Burma into ASEAN, making it a member of ASEAN. I think that you look at what the PRC is doing, you look at some of the awareness of some of the ASEAN countries of what that means for them and the security threats, the security issues for them. There might be, well, they're not, it's not that there might be, there is some awareness in the region that this is a problem and we need to push back on it. How they do that, how they organize to be able to do that remains to be seen. And the other thing to take into account here is the dynamic of the current coup. The military has announced that it is in a one-year period of emergency rule. And they have said that they intend to hold elections when they're able to hold elections. What that means, nobody knows. So there's kind of a wait and see approach. Obviously, this just happened within the last couple of weeks. But long term, I would say that there is increasing awareness in Indonesia, looking into some of the things that the Indonesian government's been doing. There is increasing awareness in Singapore as well. And Singapore has got historically strong relationships with Burma, including during the period of military rule. It's very interesting. The last time I was in Yangon, which was in the, which used to be the capital, now it's Naypyidaw, but Yangon, the biggest city and the commercial capital. Last time I was there was 2019, and I visited a company there, a educational company actually, that was producing textbooks. And the CEO of the company, she would fly down to Singapore to take care of banking issues because it just made more sense to do it there, and then fly back to Yangon. So there is some pretty strong relationship there. And Singapore is obviously a strong partner of the United States in the region. So there is, to make it short, there is a growing regional interest in pushing back in organizing something, but it really remains to be seen how that takes shape, how that forms, and what the governments of these countries in ASEAN are able to pull off in terms of organizing. That's really interesting. So here's a last question for the two of you. We're looking at a lot of variables here. What do you think the future will be 5, 10, 15 years from now? Do you see Burma develop despite all of this? Do you think they're going to continue having a very strong relationship with the military? Or do you anticipate that there's probably going to be another democracy movement? Or is it going to be a different process? There's very much a democracy movement right now. You look at the civil disobedience, you look at the protests, you look at the mass civil society activity that's going on in opposition to the coup right now. Strikes throughout the country, the banks are closed, 
Uh, a lot of businesses are closed. A lot of government offices are closed. A lot of people are protesting. A lot of people are not happy about this. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about over the last decade, having a lot more access to information, the ability to organize much more efficiently than in previous periods. So I don't think that the democracy movement there is by any means over. It remains to be seen how far the military will go. But a really interesting thing to look at when in terms of the current moment in comparison to the past is a lot of people don't like to hear this, but the Burmese military is more restrained now in terms of how they deal with civil disobedience than they have been in the past. Yes, they're beating protesters. Yes, they're arresting people at night. Yes, they're releasing violent criminals and uh, sending them into neighborhoods overnight to wreck mayhem, essentially, and legitimize their martial law because, oh, look at this. We've got all this insecurity. We have to enforce these crackdowns, that kind of thing. Doing all that, however, they're not gunning people down in the streets like they did in the past. So it looks like what is happening right now, now this might change, but it looks like what is happening right now is there is this hesitance on the part of the Burmese military to crack down too hard. The whole democracy thing is out of the box and that's not going back in. So I think that that's going to continue. Uh, however, a counter argument to that is the country's been under periods of military rule most of its history since independence in 1947. And the military in Burma doesn't really need the international community. They don't really need trade. They don't really need access to anything. They don't really need access to the global market. Previously, they had been content with being in control of, of the national economy, being in control of national security, being in control of things within the country and making their money through the black market or whatever. That's worked for them. And there has never really been an effective international response to pressure them, certainly no regional response and definitely not from the international community. There's not been an effective response to be able to pressure them in any effective way to change their behavior. I would say that some of the reasons why it's different today in terms of not as violent a crackdown as it was in the past is in part because there's a lot of eyes watching and they've learned to recognize the value of perception and the value of appearances. However, at the same time, I think this goes to what a lot of Burmese people think a lot of Burmese people have been saying and sharing on social media in terms of they believe that the PRC is behind a lot of this. I think that what they are trying to do is kind of move towards a more uh, authoritarian CCP type model of a command economy, uh, social credit system, all that kind of thing, where they can maintain their position, they can maintain their power, they can open up a, a lot more mundane personal freedoms, but still assure their position. By them, I mean the military. Um, so it, will, it remains to be seen how that develops, how that goes. But at the same time, the democracy movement is not going away. It is very, very strong right now. And it is, there's no way to put that back where it came from. Mark, do you want to weigh in on that? Uh, briefly, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, here's a slightly countervailing thought. What if we, in, in communication with the Chinese, pressured the Myanmar military to lay off? That isn't, to me, that's entirely within the realm of speculation. Uh, the second issue is, and, and that's going to take a while to develop, 
There may be tit for tat and, and other types of issues with the Chinese, but also with the Burmese as well, because they are isolated now. And also, not only are they isolated, but as you strongly suggested, the world is watching and the democracy movement cannot be put back in the bottle. So I'm not saying that it's going to be a smooth road for here to the next 10 years for them, but it's entirely possible. I mean, I mean this, it's not been unusual in the past to see us and the Russians or us and the Chinese do things that don't appear to be in the specific interest of both sides, but in fact are in the interest of both sides. So that's a possibility I'm laying out there, that the Burmese military kind of gets their wings clipped a little bit by the Chinese. And then also we show up and say, well, uh, what about the possibilities of this type of economic development for your country? We'd be happy to work with the Europeans, the European Union, uh, you name it, the Japanese and the Koreans to provide you with certain economic incentives to just lay off a little bit and not continue the type of behavior that you exhibited primarily since the last 30 years at a minimum. I'm talking about this discussion would be between the Chinese and their military and us and their military and us and the Chinese and their military. Just a, it's a thought out there. That is a very interesting thought. I think that's a good place to end and maybe pick up another conversation related to it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. Well, I really appreciate this. Uh, this has been very fascinating to listen to you guys and really good discussion. I really appreciate that and the time you guys put into it. And let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because there's a lot of things to talk about. And I, I sometimes think people in this country forget that there's a lot of things going on and that, you know, nothing stops. Let's do this again. Pleasure. Sure. Well, that concludes our discussion today. Once again, I'd like to thank both Mark and Waylon for taking the time to prepare and speak at this first episode of the Fulcrum Global Podcast. It was an insightful discussion and a firm reminder that there is always more going on in the world than one might realize. That is one of the key goals of this podcast because, well, that's just what we do around here. I personally would like to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast. There will be more to come, so be on the lookout and check out our website at fulcrumglobal.us. So on that note, I bid you all farewell. Until the next time, stay safe, sane, and savvy. Bye.